it appears that I might have forgot the call to worship. <laughs> You'd think I was up late last night or something. So let me share the call to worship with you from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you would now join me in prayer. O Lord and Father of the household of faith, we thank you this morning for the gift of faith worked within us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for having called us to yourself, for consecrating us to your service, for having set us apart to the ministry of prayer. We pray for the church in all her breadth and variety. Gathered out of every nation, family, people, and tongue to be a kingdom of priests serving you. We pray for the church in all the world, for young churches, old churches, small churches, and large churches, weak churches, strong churches. Grant to the church true humility and lowliness. For where there is pride, unity fails and there is division. Grant to her truth where there is error and wisdom where there is folly, that you might fulfill your purpose for her. O Lord and Father of the household of faith, we pray for those stewards to whom you have entrusted the affairs of your house, for our pastors, our elders, our deacons, our volunteers. Give them the spirit of willing service and true humility. Give them a, spirit, a sense of spiritual devotion. Give them delight in those whom they serve. Grant that they may lead your people in the ways of Christ that we might all enter the land of our heritage. We ask your watch care this morning over our pastor and his family as they spend fruitful time together. We pray for the people of all nations, and we pray that in every land there might be peace and true justice. We ask that you might grant that in our own communities to those who are troubled, to those who suffer, to those who are discouraged, we ask that they may know your peace, the surpassing peace that guards hearts and minds. And we pray for Ollie this morning, Father, and her recent loss. We pray that she might know your comfort, that the family might be comforted by your spirit, that your people may surround that family, give them discernment to know when to speak, and discernment to know when to just listen and to just be there. 
Father, there are many needs among us here in this room, and you know those needs, and we lift them before you this morning. We intercede through Christ our Savior. Amen. So, your bulletin, I call it a liturgy, but whatever you call it, it says the title of the sermon today is The Justice and Mercy of God. It's not that. <laughs> when I started working on that, I said, hey, big boy, this is a little bigger than a 40-minute sermon. You need a couple, maybe two or three weeks to work this out. Otherwise, you're going to be standing up here rambling for an hour and a half, and the people are going to be going, is he done yet? <laughs> so um, I had to change gears midweek. Actually, I changed gears about five times this week. Um, and I tried to change gears at about 1 o'clock this morning and said, stop it, you're killing yourself. So our text today is going to come from the 22nd chapter of Genesis, a familiar story to most of you. This is the story where Abraham and Isaac make a trip up a mountain. Oh, here goes Mike again talking about mountains. So, beginning in um, Genesis verse 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for a burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took the hand, in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went together, both of them, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. For a burnt offering, my son. So they went on together, and when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy. Or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. 
And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so goes the reading of God's word. Father, we pray now that your spirit might enlighten our hearts, our minds, that you might clear our minds, that the words um, from your scriptures might impact our lives today, that we might learn from them, and that we might hear only the voice of truth through your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So, it's kind of a rough story, isn't it? Kind of seems like it, doesn't it? Well, when I think of the fact that sometimes God's people suffer, and they suffer quite a bit, and they can suffer tremendous hardships. There's a story out there in preacher land where preachers get stories about a fella named Jack who was out jogging. And as Jack passed the cliff, he got a little too close to the edge, slipped over the edge, but miraculously on his way down, he was able to grab a branch. And he nearly pulls the branch out of the side of the cliff. And as he catches his breath, he realized he was in a bit of a jam. He couldn't just get up and walk back up, up to the top he couldn't let go, so he did all he could do. He began to scream for help, and in a moment, a voice returned. Jack, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I'm down here. I can see you, Jack. Are you all right? Yes, but who are you and where are you? I'm the Lord, Jack, and I'm everywhere. The Lord? You mean God? Yeah, that's right. God, help me. I promise that if you get me down from here, I'll stop sinning. Oh, how many times have we made promises to God? Get me out of this and I'll, I'll be a really good person and serve you for the rest of my life. God says to Jack, easy on the promises, buddy. <laughs> Let's get you down first, then we can talk about that. I'll do anything, Lord. Just tell me what to do, okay? Okay. Let go of the branch. What? I said, let go of the branch. I need you to trust me. Let go. There was a long pause as Jack thought about what God said. And in a moment, Jack let out a loud yell. Hello? Hello? Is there anybody else out there? I wonder if Abraham had those kind of thoughts. As he begins this journey. I wonder if we ever have those kind of thoughts. When it seems like we're in a trial and there is no positive outcome in our view. Abraham and his son Isaac find themselves in a very similar situation in our text today. So in verse 1 it says, after these things God tested Abraham. After what things? That's a heck of a way to start a chapter, isn't it? 
Well, obviously it's referring to the previous chapters. All the events in Abraham's life as Abraham was called by God and walked with God for these many, many years. The birth of Isaac being a big event. Isaac came after Ishmael. Ishmael was not the promised son, was he? So Isaac comes along. Abraham's only true, legitimate heir. Think about some of the other things God asked Abraham to do. Fellas, go and circumcise yourself and all your servants. Ladies, you might get a chuckle at that, but I'm pretty sure the fellas are thinking, oh, I'm sure Abraham was thinking, God, really? You want me to what? But he did it. And Abraham learned to trust God throughout all these years. So we know that after these things, we know that a, quite a period of time has passed because we know that Isaac was born, and now Isaac seems to be old enough to carry a load of wood up a mountain. So he's not a small boy anymore. He's, at the very least, he's a teenager, possibly a young man. And after these things, God tested Abraham. This is not Satan tempting Abraham as Satan tempted Job. The Hebrew language emphasizes it was God himself testing Abraham. And testing is a part of a Christian's life, isn't it? It shows what we're really like. And it can involve great difficulty and hardship. There would be plenty of testing for Abraham's descendants, wouldn't there, in the books of Exodus and Numbers? And did they pass their test? They did not do well, did they? But God was faithful. So what a test it was here for Abraham. Now, we have the advantage this morning. We know, because we can read, it's a test. But the scriptures don't really give us an indication that Abraham knew that. He may have suspected it. He walked with God a long time. So, let's say he didn't know it was a test. Abraham recalls that God promised him that an old woman and an old man, a woman who had never borne a child in her life, would bear a son. And in time, God fulfilled that promise. So Abraham knew that God could, in fact, produce life from a lifeless tomb. Of course, God foreknew the outcome of this test. He would never allow Abraham to offer up his son in sacrifice. But did Abraham know? Did Isaac know? This test is as much for Isaac as it is Abraham. We are coming to near the end of the Abraham saga in Genesis and about to begin the Isaac story. And there's not a lot to the Isaac story, but Isaac is the continuation in the patriarchal line. Isaac is the next in line for the promise way back in Genesis 3.15. So it's important that Isaac understands that God is faithful. In verse 2, it says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there 
as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Now, it's important to note that God did not tell Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice in the sense of the Mosaic law. Sacrifice under the Mosaic economy was specifically for the covering of sin, for atonement. Now, under the Mosaic law, offerings were made also to God, and oftentimes they involved, they were associated with sacrifices. But offerings were made to God out of gratitude or thanksgiving, and it, as I mentioned, sometimes in conjunction with the sacrifice. But it's important for us to understand, this is not a sacrifice, it's an offering. In a normal sense, outside of the Mosaic law, every offering involves sacrifice, right? It's not necessarily atoning sacrifice, but it, offer, it requires the giving of something. Parenting, a very good example of sacrifice in the traditional sense. Parents give up time, energy, financial resources. Raising children requires a significant and ongoing emotional investment or sacrifice. We make these sacrifices for our children's benefit in the hopes that they will one day become responsible adults. We make these sacrifices for their safety and their own emotional and mental health. Now, if you've never been involved in raising children, perhaps you've been involved in a relationship with another person, with someone that requires significant sacrifice or investment on your part. It's how we interact as humans with those we care about. We invest ourselves, we sacrifice our wants and desires sometimes to the benefit of the ones we're loving. But still, we have to ask, how could God ask Abraham to kill his own son? It was in Egypt where we would see later that human life was cheap. Pharaoh ordered all the baby boys of Israel to be drowned in the Nile River. God was opposed to killing creatures made in his image. He instructed Noah after the flood Whoever sheds the blood of a human by a human, shall that person's blood be shed. He commanded Israel at Mount Sinai, you shall not murder. He warned Israel in Canaan not to imitate the Canaanites in sacrificing their children to pagan gods. How could God contradict his own law by asking Abraham to offer his son as a burnt offering? And for Abraham, the request is even more contradictory. Isaac is the son of promise. When God first called Abraham to leave his country and his family, his father's house, he had to leave behind his past and everything he owned and move forward with his wife and his nephew Lot and the promise that God would make him a great nation. And after 10 years of waiting for a child, he finally receives Ishmael through his wife's servant, Hagar. Could this be the son of promise? God had other plans. Another 15 years of waiting. Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah receive Isaac, whose name means laughter. 
There was laughter in Abraham's household, finally. But Abraham's wife becomes jealous of Ishmael and her servant Hagar, and she instructs Abraham, send her away. Now, Abraham was the patriarch of the family. He was the head of the household. He was the man. But, fellas, we know. Sometimes when Mama says, we just do it. It's just easier that way. She might even be right. She probably is right. Isaac was the future. In him, all the blessings that God had promised to Abraham were guaranteed. Through Isaac, Abraham would become a great nation. Isaac was the embodiment of all the promises. He's the focal point of all of Abraham's hopes. And now God asked Abraham to offer Isaac on an altar. He's asking Abraham to turn laughter into smoke. I know that's crass, but that seems to be the test. God asked Abraham way back in the beginning to burn all his bridges behind him, leave it all behind. Now he's asking him to burn everything in front of him and to walk alone with God, to rely solely on God. Now there's a buildup in verse 2 if you've seen it. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him. Ten times this narrative uses the word son to indicate the enormity of what God is asking Abraham's only son. Offer him as an offering. If Abraham goes through this, it will be as if Sarah never gave birth. Abraham's long walk with God, up in smoke, all for nothing, an unfruitful ending. Can you imagine what was going through Abraham's mind? He probably tossed and turned, wondering, maybe I was to dream. This was a dream. I'm going to wake up and it's going to be over. Was it really God who had spoken to him or was his mind playing tricks on him? If it was indeed God speaking, how could he request that I offer up my son, the son of promise? We move to verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. Strangely, Abraham doesn't say a word. The scriptures don't give us anything. Remember how Abraham argued with God over the destruction of Sodom because Lot was there? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city, God. He bargains with God, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. But here he doesn't say anything. And we have to assume he doesn't say anything to Sarah either. He simply obeys. And we see his every move. He rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men and Isaac. He cuts wood for a burnt offering. He set out and went to the place in the distance. For three days they traveled. 
I wonder why they travel for three days. Well, that three days is a significant number when we get to the New Testament, isn't it? Why does God select such a place, a place so far away? Well, the location is specific. And you would read about that location later uh, in Samuel uh, when David goes and buys a threshing floor because there's a famine in the land. And then Second Chronicles, the chronicler tells us that location where David purchased the threshing floor as a sacrifice is where Solomon would build the temple. Ultimately, the temple, the temple, so... God has a, a theological reason for this, but there's something else going on. This is a test of Abram's faith. He's going to journey for three days with this in his mind. Put yourself in his shoes. How would you deal with that for three days? John Calvin suggests that God compels him to, resolve, to revolve this execution in his mind during the entirety of the trip. It's designed to make him persevere so that he's not obeying God just by a sudden impulse. That it could not be affected by a change in circumstance. Abraham alone knew the purpose of his journey. He, he, the scriptures don't tell us that he shared it with anybody else. And it's that way with us sometimes, isn't it? We may be enduring a tremendous struggle. Sometimes a struggle we can only share with God. A struggle we might not even be able to share with our closest human confidant. Sometimes it's not that we can't share the story. We just can't bear to share the story. For any number of reasons. We have to put ourselves into this story and try to imagine for ourselves what it was like for Abraham. But God knew. He knew what Abraham was thinking. He knew exactly what Abraham was feeling. The same way he knows what you're thinking and what you're feeling when you're going through a trial. On the third day, they see the place. And in verse 5, Abraham says to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there, and we will worship, and we will come back to you. We will come back to you. Does Abraham really think he's going to return with Isaac? Dr. Bruce Walk, he suggests that although he doesn't know how God's going to work this out, Abraham's faith harmonizes with God's promise that Isaac is the one through whom the promise will continue. And according to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the faith chapter in verses 17, 19, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So into verse 6, Abraham takes the wood of the burnt offering and he, and he lays Isaac up on it. Or he's carrying the wood. He has Isaac carrying the wood. What's Abraham carrying? The knife and the fire. Isaac's load gets heavier, but Abraham has the dangerous items in his hands. So they walk on, father and son. 
It isn't long before Isaac notices something is missing. And in verse 7, he says to Abraham, his father, Father, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Hmm. How that question must have cut Abraham's heart. Where's the lamb? What's, his, what's he going to say in response to his son? Shall he tell Isaac the truth? That he's the lamb, apparently? Abraham responds like you and I might. God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So we have to ask the question, is Abraham seeking to postpone the pain for Isaac? Or is it a statement of his faith in God? The scriptures don't answer that question for us. You've got to reason that for yourself. Klaus Westerman, an Old Testament scholar, comments, Abraham refers Isaac to God as the one who's going to answer the question. It's God's demand. Abraham throws the ball back in God's court, so to speak. God will provide. And so the father and son continue on the journey. And they come to the place where the offering is to be made. In verse 9, the place where God showed him. Abraham builds the altar. He lays the wood on the altar. He binds Isaac and lays Isaac on the altar. Does he trust God so much that he's not just going to offer his son but the entire promise, the whole future? And the, the story comes to its climax in verse 10, and it says, And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. For me, personally, this is the most mesmerizing part of the entire story. I know the story focuses on Abraham and his faith, the father's actions. But what about the son? We've considered and put ourselves in Abraham's shoes to try to understand his thoughts, how he felt. But what about Isaac? Did he struggle when his father bound him? He's a young man, probably able to maybe give Abraham a run for his money or even a whooping. What did he think as his father lifted him up onto this altar? Put yourself in his shoes. Imagine your confusion and your fear. Is my father really going to set me on fire and make a burnt offering of me? Of course, we know, and we see again, Isaac is not going to be made an offering. He never was. Regardless of how the story went, Isaac was never going to actually be an offering. I wonder, however, if this story makes you think about another father-son story. I wonder if your mind isn't drawn to an ancient garden in Gethsemane, where the Son of God, in anguished prayer with his Father, is there any other way? Can this cup pass from me? So perplexed over this awesome responsibility that Christ had been given to fulfill. He sweated drops of blood. And yet, ultimately, not my will, but your will, Father, is the ultimate outcome. So at that moment in verse 11, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham, Stop! Abraham! Abraham says what he said for the third time now. Here I am. Here I am. It seems so strange in there, but 
Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know that you fear God. And fearing God does not mean Abraham is afraid of God. Fearing God here is equivalent to obeying God's commands out of reverence. God requested Abraham to do something, and Abraham has demonstrated he's ready to obey. So then in the next verse, Abraham looks up, and lo and behold, in the bushes is a ram, stuck, horn stuck in, in the uh, bushes. And that lamb becomes the burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham offers the ram instead of his son, and because the ram dies, Isaac can live. And because Isaac can live, Israel can eventually become a nation. And because Israel eventually becomes a nation, Christ is eventually born. And because Christ is eventually born, you sit here today, and followers of Christ with their sins forgiven. So in verse 14, it says, Abraham called that place Jehovah-Jireh, or the Lord will provide. And the story adds, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The mount of the Lord, this would become the temple mount. It's painting a picture. Christ was not crucified in the temple, was he? The temple is merely painting a picture of the new temple. And this is the third time this term provide shows up. The first time was when Isaac was asked, Isaac asked, where's the lamb for the offering? Abraham responded, God will provide the lamb. And God has provided a lamb instead of his son. No wonder Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. The, the writer even adds, it's a popular saying still uh, with Old Testament characters. The original audience for this story are the Israelites in the wilderness traveling during their exodus. The Passover feast was first celebrated in Egypt. Moses prescribed that the Israelites were to take a lamb without blemish, a year old male, and slaughter it at twilight. And they should take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil. And that's where we'll go the next time I'm in front of you. We're going to look at that. That's the justice and mercy of God. So the Israelites ultimately are saved by the blood of a lamb. A lamb died instead of the firstborn of Israel. The offerings later in the tabernacle and temple carried a similar message. Now the Mosaic economy is in place. The Mosaic law is in place. Sacrifice takes on a new connotation in the New Testament but ultimately in each of these sacrifices an animal dies so that the Israelite people could survive in the New Testament we read the familiar passage in John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son his only son God made the supreme sacrifice an offering that he prevented Abraham from making he gave his only son to save the world and his people so in the New Testament, we see the Lord provides 
the sacrificial lamb, so that his people may live. And the lamb is Jesus Christ. We know that. John the Baptist comes. That's his message. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus himself proclaimed that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who dies for the sins of God's people. Back to verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies, and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the 35th encounter between God and Abraham, direct encounter. And it's the last one we read about in the Abraham story. The Lord's promises are framed by references to Abraham's obedience. Now, we like to talk about Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, as a covenant of grace, don't we? Abraham didn't have to do anything. Well, was obedience expected? It, it, obviously, it was. So, it's, it's a bit of a stretch for us to look at the new covenant and come up with this thing about how oh, now that, that obedience stuff is out the window. It's also a stretch for us to overemphasize that obedience. Christ satisfied the cost. Our obedience is not to satisfy something. So, as, as this passage concludes, God is repeating the promise promise that he made way back many, many years ago to Abraham, but now he's enhancing the promise. For example, the Lord had promised to make Abraham's seed as numerous as the stars in heaven. Now, the Lord makes the promise more emphatic by adding, and as the sand that is on the seashore. Anybody been to the beach lately? I know some have. There's a lot of sand there. Think about each little grain of sand. That's the promise to Abraham. He promised to give the land of the Canaanites to Abraham's seed. Now the Lord adds, and your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. The Lord had promised in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now he promises through your offspring, seed, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. That seed was first of all Isaac, then Jacob, and then Joseph, who becomes the father of these nations. He, he rescues his family from a famine and they come to Egypt to buy grain. The ultimate seed, of course, is Christ, who Matthew calls the son of Abraham, through whom all nations would be blessed because he was the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he sends followers out to make disciples of all nations. Just like Israel of old, just like Israel of the New Testament, just like the people in Citrus County who call themselves Christians, we sometimes wonder, can we really trust God 
provide for our redemption? Shouldn't we be doing something about it ourselves? And if God did provide for our redemption, why do we see so little of it in our world and sometimes even in our own lives? Paul responds to some of those questions in Romans 8. In fact, he probably is alluding to verse 16 from our text where God says to Abraham, because you have not withheld your son. Paul writes, if God is for us, who is against us? He did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also, will he not with him also give us everything? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God who justifies, who will bring a charge? Who's to condemn? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? No, in all these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The God who forbid child sacrifice, the God who stopped Abraham from offering his only son, is the God who loved us so much that he offered up his son. No matter how difficult our circumstances are, we can, in fact, trust God for our salvation. He provided the ram so that Isaac and Israel could live. He provided his only son so that anyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. God provides. That's what Abraham named the place. The faith that God demands, he provides. But it's not a blind faith. Abraham had three days to think about what God asked him. You see, faith is not blind. It requires something else of us besides obedience. It requires thought. It requires thinking. It requires the use of your intellect. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about faith. Faith, according to our Lord's teaching, involves a great deal of thinking. And the whole trouble with a man of little faith is that he does not think. He allows his circumstances to control him, to bludgeon him. We must spend more time studying our Lord's lessons in observation, in deduction, putting our thoughts to work. The Bible's full of logic. We must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We have a tendency to do that with the Bible. It's all magical and mystical. It requires our head to work as well. We don't just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen. That's not Christian faith. Christian faith involves a whole lot of thinking. Look at the birds. Think about them. And start thinking about, where did that bird come from? How did it get here? Why is it so beautiful? Why does it do what it does? Look at the grass. Look at the lilies of the field. Consider them. Faith, if you like, can be defined kind of like this. If a man, it is a man insisting upon thinking when everything seems determined to knock him down in an intellectual sense. He can't see the way through, much like Abraham must have. But he knew in his mind the promise of God. The trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling their own thoughts, their thoughts are controlled by their circumstance.
and you go round and round and round in circles. And you remember I made a joke last week in Sunday school when I was talking about being concerned about my family not texting me that they had arrived. Y'all remember that. And Lloyd walks up and hands me this little note about worry. Worry. That going around and around in circles. Not exercising faith, not putting your mind to work, letting your mind be worked instead. Look to the story of Abraham and Isaac. God is faithful always to his covenant promises. Sometimes we ask God for things, and sometimes we don't get them. The thing I would ask you to consider is what I'm asking for in line with the covenant promises of God. God will always be faithful to his covenant promises. So perhaps sometimes we need to adjust our expectations, our desires, and our wants to be in line with what God has promised. Father, thank you for this time that we might spend in your word together. Uh, I pray that we might see something here this morning that we can use in our lives, um, something to help us um, when we face tests. Father, we ask this through Christ our Savior. Amen.